invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, in the New Testament. If you're using one of these Bibles from the pews, that's page 973. I've been doing a series of sermons on persevering in the Christian life, and today I want to look at the subject of uh, dealing with opposition as we see it displayed toward Christ and his disciples. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 through verse 29. Hear God's word. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others say he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray together briefly. 
Father, you said you've sent your Holy Spirit. One of the reasons was to guide us into all truth. We ask that that might happen now. Change our hearts. We are hungry. We need spiritual nourishment. You've told us we do not live by physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We pray you'd feed us now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today is decision time. It's a big decision everybody's been talking about for a long time, and it's far more important than health care. What I'm talking about is the decision that this passage calls us to about who Jesus is. The Gospels demand a decision, and it says now is the time. And that's the spirit of this passage in Mark chapter 6. Jesus goes to his hometown, which was the city of Capernaum. And then the disciples do the same. They go out and they minister. And then for King Herod and for Herodias, his wife, it's a time of decision. The Bible calls us to decisions and commitment. In the Old Testament, we have many places, but one in particular is where Joshua, who was the successor of Moses, who led God's people into the the promised land after Moses' death. We read in Joshua, he stands at the entrance to the promised land, and he says, Choose whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Often we don't want to decide about whom we will serve. People go to church. They may find it pleasurable on some level. They may like to talk to people that are safe. They may even be entertained by certain things with the preacher, with the music, or something like that. They go to a Sunday school class and to a home Bible study. Maybe they go to a campus ministry and then a Christmas party, and they, they buy a few books, and they read, and they have fun, but the day comes they have to decide, will I follow Christ or not? Is he my Lord or is he not? You can hear information, you can read the Bible, you can listen to sermons, but ultimately there comes a day and a time when the issue has to be settled. For some, in a crowd this size, I hope today is the day. Who is this Jesus? He is the one who demands a decision. That's who he is. To accept him or to reject him. To believe or not to believe. And we meet... All such people in this passage. Let's just do a brief survey of some of the ones we meet. Verses 1 to 6 tell about Jesus back in his base of ministry called Capernaum. He was born in Bethlehem. He spent his growing up years in Nazareth. But his base of operations was a town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. He traveled out from there to other places. Now it tells us that he travels about 20 miles from Capernaum to the town of Nazareth. As I said, Nazareth was where he grew up. He spent his childhood and his teen years and his 20s there. It has nothing there at that time, I'm told, but a small country town in the hills of Galilee. And he's not coming there strictly to visit, to see old friends. He brings his disciples with them. He's coming to minister and to engage in kingdom work. It tells us he goes into the synagogue. That was customary on the Sabbath day, our Saturday, their Sabbath. And he's invited to speak to the congregation. That also would have been pretty typical. And he's speaking to a group he had known all of his life. Like we would refer to sometimes when people come here, as this is a a son of this congregation. A person grew up here, was called into ministry, and now a pastor, a missionary, or something like that. Now he preaches. He opens the scriptures to them. We're not told in the Gospel of Mark what his subject was. But we are told what kind of reaction he gained from the hearers. They're amazed. 
And they say, where did this man get all these things? Where did he get this great wisdom? We hear that he does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? So they are amazed, but their amazement has more to it. There are also those, it says in verse 3, they take offense at him. You would think that those most closely associated with the truth would most readily accept it, but it's rarely the way it works. You'd think those most close to the truth would most readily accept it, but not here. What's going on? Why are they offended? Is he rejected because of lack of evidence? They knew the evidence of his actions. They had heard, and people had given firsthand accounts that he had healed the lame. He had healed a woman who had a bleeding issue that had been a better part of her life. He had cast out demons. He had stilled a storm on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. All of that was demonstration, undisputed demonstration, that at least he was more than a carpenter. Then there were the evidence of his words. Even these people that heard him said he taught with more wisdom and authority than they had ever heard. You've had teachers of the Bible, perhaps. We've had seminary professors here sometimes, and I greatly appreciate it. Here's a person who spent the bulk of their adult life, at least, studying maybe one book of the Bible. And they can handle it with such knowledge and authority that we say, wow. But we don't ask, where did this person get this knowledge and wisdom? We know they learned it in school. But with Jesus, they are just mesmerized. His insight, his wisdom, the way he spoke, his message. They say, we've never heard anything like this. So they acknowledge that. They're not questioning his credentials. So why do they reject him? They reject him out of pride. They're thinking other people might be taken in from you by you, but not us. We know you. We watched you play in the mud puddles when you were growing up. We saw you as a teenager. We know you can't fool us. Who do you think you are speaking with such assurance and confidence about God's word? We'll show you. Ever have a friend become <clears throat> well-known, maybe even a degree of notoriety, or like a celebrity, someone you grew up with or you knew and now either in some business or politics or music or sports or something, they become well-known and suddenly there's a wall. You don't, you don't have high regard for that person anymore. You kind of resent them. Or maybe you've achieved some kind of honor, maybe a promotion, maybe some kind of windfall, maybe some kind of notoriety, and you realize that maybe a long time, maybe a lifelong friendship with another person now seems jeopardized because of jealousy, that you didn't see it coming. Well, these people resent Jesus. They are not saying that the reports about Jesus, about miracles and so forth, are not true. They just seem to resent the fact that they are true. Familiarity breeds contempt. Remember the old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder? <laughs> For somebody else. <laughs> but familiarity breeds contempt. It is almost always true. Their comments are caustic. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Who did they just leave out of that? Joseph. You never referred to a Jewish boy by his mother's name, the son of the mother, the son of the father. That was, a, that was an insult. Wasn't this Mary's son? Oh, yeah, right, virgin birth, sure, sure, right. 
Every Christian, every missionary, every pastor, every believer that wants to bear testimony to Christ ought to know that the message will always be rejected, will always be despised. Jesus is hated here because he is God. I think it's common for you and to me and others to think that everybody would worship Christ if God just revealed himself more to people, more in power, more in clarity. After all, all we have is this ancient Bible, 40 authors, 66 books, written over a period of thousands of years. We don't do miracles in the church anymore. I mean, you can call finding a parking space a miracle, but that doesn't exactly go along with, you know, a lame person being healed or God upturning the laws of nature to cause something to happen. We think if God were just a little more convincing, people would believe. I remember in elementary school there was a fellow that was the... uh, he was a gymnast, and he was the like director at a YMCA in my hometown. And he was very athletic. He would teach all sorts of lessons from gymnastics and sports and so forth. And I don't remember his name, but I, I remember the fact that he, oddly enough, serving on the staff with the YMCA, at best would call himself an agnostic, maybe even an atheist. I remember standing and hearing him talk with another person in the lobby, and I was standing off to the side, and I heard him say, I can't believe in the Bible. I can't believe in all these things, you know, fairy tales. It can't be true. It's just not credible and so forth. And then he stood there and he kind of looked off into space and he said, but if they ever find that ark, meaning that Noah's ark, meaning like if they found Noah's ark, he was going to have a major crisis in his worldview. You know what I think based on this? They could find the ark in his backyard and it wouldn't make any difference. Here is Christ. Here's the person, they're not even doubting the reports of miracles and so things that we think, oh, everybody would be converted. And they resent him. They resent him. So we may think, well, there just needs to be more evidence. It's a lack of evidence. No, in this case, it's not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of having a soft heart. They have stone-cold hearts. And you and I, you may be sitting there thinking, if you just had more evidence that you would be a Christian, I would say you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. And we, uh, even Christians, fall prey to this by talking about, well, you just have to take a leap into the dark, a leap in the darkness. You can't wait for God to show himself. You just have to believe what you know isn't true. (laughs) That's about how we talk about faith sometimes, but that's not the scriptural way to describe it. Bible doesn't say it's blind faith. <clears throat> it's always a step of faith, but not blind faith. We have eyewitness accounts. You have to decide whether you're going to believe it or not. We'll never have enough information to make decisions without some degree of faith. Imagine, if you will, being on a mountain by yourself in a snowstorm. You're at the edge of a cliff. If you stay on the mountain, you'll die. You cannot see your way down. Christianity doesn't say, well, just jump out into the darkness. No, you cry out for help. So to speak, a voice comes back and says, I can help. I know this mountain. I made this mountain. I understand how it works. I made this storm. Here is what's below you. Here is what is around you. And you say, I just need more information and proof. Fine. Ask all the questions you want to. You need to jump. There's a ledge down below you. Below that is a cave where you will be safe. You can't see it now. 
So it's not a blind leap, it's a fully informed leap. But most men and women choose to die on the mountain. And not for lack of evidence, but just an unwilling heart, a hard heart. And that's what we find here. But if you do jump, so to speak, what you'll find is the embrace of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the next group of people. The disciples are sent out in verses 6 and following. He sends them out into various villages. He sends them out in pairs to preach, to spread the gospel. And then he tells them if they're rejected at certain towns, if they're not welcome there, in other words, if the message is rejected, uh, then they are to move on. He's very straightforward about that. Shake the dust off your sandals and keep going. Why? That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Well, there's a proper urgency in spreading the gospel. And you and I are stewards of the gospel, and we need to take the gospel where people are receptive. Everyone needs the opportunity to hear, but once people reject it, and other people have not heard it yet and had the opportunity, we need to go there. Years ago, I heard, a, I was at a student mission conference, and a person made this comment, said, is it fair for uh, one person who has never heard the gospel not to hear it, and when other people who've heard it a hundred times and reject it, keep hearing it? Who needs to hear it more? The person who's never had the opportunity. And so Christ is saying that we need to look for open doors. We do that in missions. We do that as a church. For the past two or three years, we've been very involved in Haiti, among other places, with church planting and mercy ministry and so forth. There are great open doors right now. It's a tremendous time for ministry, and we feel spiritually that the mature thing to do is move where the Spirit's moving. At the same time, we support missions in Japan. We've done that for years and years. Japan is one of the hardest countries in the whole world to reach people for the gospel. Always has been, apparently, well, at least in the past 40 years. And there's sometimes breakthrough, but we don't abandon it. But you just have to take into account where is God moving. Christ said if they reject it, then move on to the next place. So some people will just be hostile. There's more here. There's more here in that Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they will encounter as they go out. Take a coach, a high school coach, well, better yet, a junior high coach with basketball. And maybe some of the players are new basketball players, so the coach has to teach the players to dribble, how to pass, and how to do the basics, the fundamentals. Then as they progress and they get older and they get more mature in the game. The coach, if it's a good coach, will teach the players not only how to play when they practice by themselves, when they scrimmage, then has to teach them how to play in front of fans, then has to teach them how to play in front of hostile fans, then has to teach them how to play when the referees are for the home, give, them the home, give the other team the home court advantage. Now, a good coach prepares a team for all that scenario not just in an isolated situation. What Christ is doing with his disciples is sending them out into what they will encounter. He's saying you are going to be rejected by some. Not all, but some will. And you shouldn't be surprised when that happens. He's preparing them. He's teaching them about the opposition they face and we will face. And it's always been that way. He mentions John the Baptist. We'll see more about him in just a moment. But it's been that way for God's people for millennia. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Peter, Paul, Silas, Stephen being stoned. That's our legacy. 
That's our heritage. Women who helped Amy Carmichael in India. SS guards who became believers in World War II. Believers now suffering greatly in North Korea. Thousands of Sudanese Christians. Did you read what happened? You know, if you've read the news 12 days ago, on March the 10th, 11 days ago, um, the World Vision, you're familiar with World Vision, the Christian Relief Agency and that many of us here have given money to, and uh, it's, it's based in, in northwestern United States, but they have ministries, they have offices all over the world. In Pakistan, uh, on the 10th of March, there in, at 9 a.m. on a, on a, uh, a Monday morning, a, uh, the World Vision office, uh, Islamic terrorists came in, separated the Christian and the, the Christians and the World Vision workers and executed six of them right there on the spot, then blew up the building, and a seventh worker died uh, a few days ago. Strictly, they asked them, why are you doing this? That was a question, and then they killed them. Two weeks ago, in Nigeria, 500 Christians, men, women, and children, were slaughtered in their villages just for being Christians. Again, terrorists came in. Ask them to pronounce a word, talk an example out of the Bible, that they knew they could not pronounce it correctly uh, if they were of a certain Christian background. They could not, and they they would kill them with machetes on the spot. Uh, Fifteen were killed just the other day in addition to those. That's our our legacy. Uh, I, years ago, as we were preparing to go on vacation, um... I went to the public library and wanted to find a book to read, something 